Well, good morning. It's great to see all of you. We have some visitors with us, and we're delighted that you're here as well. And uh, hope and pray that you'll feel welcome, uh, so welcome that uh, you'll be back with us very soon. Also have some folks here that are not so much visitors, but uh, back, uh, back with us, and we're glad to see uh, several of them. And I'll let you seek them out, but it's a, it's a joy to see them. I heard this past week at the Faulkner Lectures, actually I read this a few weeks ago, I've heard many things this past week at the Faulkner Lectures, about a, a, a railroad tunnel, the longest in the world, it's in Switzerland, Gotthard, I believe is the way you pronounce the name of this tunnel. It's some 30, over 35 miles long, approximately the distance from here to, say, Loxley approximately that distance. Imagine going through a tunnel that, that long. And some, as they approach this tunnel, knowing about it, may have a little, well, if you're claustrophobic, it may make you a little uneasy. And I'm sure there are lights in this tunnel, but imagine if it were dark the whole 35 miles per hour, that, or the whole 35 miles. That would be uh, noteworthy, wouldn't it? And some would uh, be a little afraid of that. And I'll tell you about this tunnel only in light of a, a quote that I read from Corey Ten Boom. Corey Ten Boom and her family hid some Jews during, during World War II and was imprisoned because of that, but survived. And this is a statement that she, she made. When a train goes through a tunnel and it gets dark, you don't throw away the ticket and jump off. You sit still and trust the engineer. In light of her experiences of being imprisoned in a Nazi prison camp, that statement takes on new meaning because she had been in the dark, if you will, and, and we can relate to that because we live in a world that's filled with a lot of darkness. I know the war in Israel and uh, the war in, in the Ukraine are two worldly wor examples in the world of how there are some dark times that we're going through. But I want to, us to take to heart this message that when it gets dark, as if you're run, going through a, a train tunnel, we don't throw away the ticket and jump off. We sit still and we trust the engineer. But some may ask in dark times that we experience on a local and global level and every point in between, where is God in all this? Where, where, where is God? And I want to point you to a prophecy made by Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 9. And we understand it to be a prophecy concerning the Messiah, concerning Jesus, spoken some 700 years before Christ. And let me remind you of the wording of this prophecy. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over, and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. 
well-known prophecy about Jesus and, and the, this, these descriptive names that would describe him to us, this Messiah. But among those is Prince of Peace. Prince of Peace. This would characterize his, his nature, but also the nature of his kingdom and what his kingdom would, would bring. But we see so much in the world, so much darkness in the world, and many are asking this question, where is the Prince of Peace? Where is the Prince of Peace? Instead, we see war, even, even in Israel. Where is the Prince of Peace? I want to explore uh, this, what this means, Prince of Peace, and the nature of Christ's kingdom with you this morning. Number one, I think we need to ask ourselves and ask all who are studying this passage and, and wanting to know about the answer to this question, where is the Prince of Peace? Perhaps we've misunderstood what that means. And that wouldn't be uncommon because even Jesus' apostles misunderstood the nature of Christ's kingdom, the nature of his reign. In fact, after his death, burial, and resurrection, before he is ascended, he spends about 40 days talking to his apostles about the kingdom of God. Acts chapter 1, Luke tells us that. And after, saying, after instructing them to stay in Jerusalem for the fulfillment of the promise of the Father that they would be baptized in the Holy Spirit, the apostles, Jesus' apostles, ask him this question. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? What they were anticipating was exactly what their question suggests. That Jesus would set up an earthly kingdom. And, that, and for one thing that they were especially looking forward to, it would, they, he would get rid of the Romans. They were under Roman rule in the Roman Empire. And, and they didn't like that rule. And so, Lord, will you restore the kingdom to Israel at this time? Will you restore the kingdom back to the glory that, it, that we had when, when David and Solomon reigned? So even they misunderstood the nature of the kingdom. By the way, Jesus tells them, just remain in Jerusalem and you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. But they misunderstood the nature of Jesus' kingdom. Perhaps many others have as well. But then we find this statement from Jesus' lips. He said, do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. And that's a statement from the Prince of Peace himself. So that doesn't sound like uh, peace. Where is the Prince of Peace? And, and then what kind of peace is Jesus being promised in, in Isaiah's prophecy. By the way, if you keep reading in that Matthew 10 passage, we understand what Jesus was referring to. He says, I've come to set a man against his father, a, da a daughter against her mother, and a daughter against her mother-in-law, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be those of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. And what Jesus is saying in that he didn't come to bring peace on earth but a sword, what he's saying is that there in many families 
There may be some family members that choose to follow Jesus and it's going to put them at enmity with their other family members. Jesus is saying, if you're going to follow me, you've got to love me supremely. And if you love me supremely, there are others, even family members perhaps, that are going to be offended by that. And it's going to cause a sword. It's going to cause enmity to come into those relationships. I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. In light of Jesus saying, your choice to follow me may bring trouble to your relationships, even your closest family relationships. That doesn't sound very peaceful, does it? Then we find this statement from Jesus. These things I have spoken to you, he's speaking to his disciples, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. And I've told you this before, and this is quoting from the New King James Version. The word will is italicized, and that means it's supplied by the translators to to help convey the meaning. In the world, you will have tribulation. But if you remove that word will, I think you still have the intent of what Jesus is saying. In the world, you have tribulation. And he's speaking to his disciples, and he's saying, if you're going to follow me... And part of being in the world is that you're going to experience tribulation. You're going to experience trouble. How does that tie in with this prophecy concerning Jesus, the Messiah, that he's the Prince of Peace? Where is the Prince of Peace? And one other statement from Jesus' lips. This is before Pilate. And Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. And that, that you'll remember, is in the context. Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, I am, but my kingdom is not from here. It's not a physical kingdom. It's a spiritual kingdom. So statements such as these, even the apostles who would hear them were misunderstanding the nature of Jesus' kingdom, that it's spiritual and not physical. Even so, I believe there are many that misunderstand the nature of Christ's kingdom today and what it means for Jesus to be the Prince of Peace. But still the question needs to be answered, where is the Prince of Peace? And even more, how can we experience that peace that the Prince of Peace gives? I want to go back to Isaiah chapter 2 with you. I invite you to open your Bibles or look it up on your device, Isaiah chapter 2. And a prophecy about the Messiah and his kingdom. And I want to read it with you and then then break it down with you for a few moments. Isaiah 2, the first five verses. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow into it. Many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word 
from the from the Lord, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and rebuke many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come and let us walk in the light of the Lord. This prophecy given some 700 years before Christ. Again, in prophecies and the Old Testament prophets, they had messages for, for the people of Judah, for Israel in their day. But yet in their prophecies, many of them even have a dual fulfillment. It had a message for them in that day, but it's also looking forward. One writer that I read this past week said it was the divine telescope, that they are prophesying about something which is to come. Namely, in this instance, the kingdom, the king, Christ, the Messiah, and his kingdom. And I understand this text to be one of those prophecies that, that is ultimately being fulfilled with the coming of Christ and the establishment of his, of his kingdom. And I want to go back through <coughs> this text with you and note some things that point to Christ and his kingdom. First of all, notice what is being discussed. What is being discussed. And that what is the Lord's house. First two verses again. The word that Isaiah the son of Amos now saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow into it. Some contend that this phrase is referring to a new temple that would be built in the future. But when we get to the New Testament, we find language that suggests that this temple or this House of the Lord is a reference to the church. Let me give you a couple of examples. 1 Timothy 3, verse 15. Paul writes to this young minister, If I'm delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God. The house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And there are many other references in the New Testament that talk about God's house being another descriptive phrase of the church. The church that Jesus died to establish. The church that he purchased with his blood. In fact, the physical temple of the Old Testament typifies the spiritual temple that Christ would build under the new covenant. That is the church. His kingdom. 1 Corinthians 3.16, the Apostle Paul asks a question of the Christians of the church in Corinth. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? You're the temple of God. He's not talking about a physical structure. He's talking about the people that compose the church. Those who have obeyed the gospel. Those who have been added to the church. You're the temple of God and the Spirit of God dwells in you. Just like... Under the old dispensation, in that physical temple, the, it was believed to be where God dwelt in a special way. You go back to the tabernacle, 
they would visualize that with a pillar of cloud and a fire, a pillar of fire and a, a, and a cloud as well, signifying the presence of God. But under the new covenant, the church, the people of God, are the temple of God. They're the Lord's house. And I believe Isaiah is pointing forward to the time when this Lord's house, the church, would be established. When, Isaiah, when will that take place? It shall come to pass in the latter days, Isaiah says. Many confuse this phrase, the latter days, with the days immediately preceding the end of time when Jesus returns the second time. However, many times in the Old Testament, these, this phrase was used not to refer to those days just preceding the Lord's second return, but to a day that would be future to them that would begin when the Messiah came and established his kingdom. Let me give you a parallel passage. Joel prophesied, Joel 2, 28 through 32, a time when the Spirit of God would, would come upon, upon his people. Peter, in preaching on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem, tells us when that prophecy was fulfilled. You remember the Holy Spirit came upon the apostles and they, they began to speak in other tongues, in other languages. And all were amazed and some not understanding these foreign languages that they had not studied thought they're drunk. But Peter corrected them. Notice what he says, verse 15 of Acts 2. These are not drunk as you suppose since it's only the third hour of the day. It's only nine o'clock in the morning. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And he quotes Joel. It shall come to pass in the last day, says God, that I will pour out of my spirit my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. Notice what he says. Joel made this prophecy. And now it's being fulfilled. What you're seeing is the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy. When did Joel say it would take place? In the last days. Are we living in the last days? Yes, we are. The last days began when, when the Messiah came and established his kingdom, the church. And the last days will continue until the, Jesus comes back. We're in the last days. And we have been since the day of, of Pentecost. So Peter says they were in the last days. Isaiah is simply saying that, I believe, that in the future, more specifically in the last dispensation... The Christian dispensation, the mountain of the Lord's house, the church, would be established. Where would that, is, to, is that to happen, Isaiah? For out of Zion, Isaiah 2 verse 3, shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Zion and Jerusalem refer to the same place. That's where the Lord's house would be established. And the law would go forth from that city. Let me take you to Acts chapter 2 again. In fact, you'll see prophecy being fulfilled. Where are they? Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. They're in Jerusalem. Jews from all over the world have come to, 
to celebrate this feast of Pentecost. And it's on that occasion, first day of the week, on a Sunday, <coughs> that the gospel of Jesus Christ is preached to them. And, and the Peter's sermon is recorded and he tells them about the promised Messiah. He says, by your cruel hands, but also by the divine plan of God, you crucified, you killed Jesus, but God rose him from the dead. And now he's exalted at the right hand of God. And the people are convicted of their sins. And they ask, what shall we do? They recognize that the man that, that many of them had cried out for his crucifixion, that was the promised Messiah. Is there any hope for us, they're asking. And Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And about 3,000 gladly received his word and were baptized. And the Lord added them to the church, the kingdom that was prophesied, that even Isaiah prophesied that this would happen. It would begin in Jerusalem. And the book of Acts chronicles how that would continue, how the, the gospel was first preached as an accomplished fact in Jerusalem, but it would go into Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. But it began in Jerusalem, just like Isaiah said it would. Let me point out one other thing about this from Jerusalem. It's one of Jesus' post-resurrection appearances to his apostles. And he meets with them and he begins to help them connect the dots between the Old Testament prophecies like we're studying and their fulfillment in Christ and his kingdom. And he says he opened up their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. And then he said this, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ, the Messiah, to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in His name to all nations, beginning where? Beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. Don't you see it coming together? Isaiah, 700 years before Christ, is talking about these things. He said the Lord's house is going to be established on this mountain. And it's going to be in the last days that would begin when the Messiah set up his kingdom, the church. And it will, the, the word of God will go out from Jerusalem. And now he's telling them it's happening here. You stay in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes upon you. But notice Isaiah also addresses who is involved in this prophecy. The mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations, all nations shall flow into it. Isaiah says that when the law would go forth from Jerusalem, all nations would flow into the Lord's house. And again, that's exactly what the book of Acts chronicles for us. Let me go back to Acts 2 with you again and notice verse 5. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men, from where? From every nation under heaven. You keep reading, you'll find a list of at least 15 different nations 
that were represented in Jerusalem on that day. The word will go forth from Jerusalem. All nations will be brought into the Lord's house. And, and here we see that being fulfilled when about 3,000 were receptive to the message of Jesus and responded in obedience to the gospel. And then within just a few years of Pentecost and under the Lord's direction, Gentiles began to enter the church, enter into the kingdom of Christ. Acts 11 verse 1 is one of those references. The apostles and brethren who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. All nations, Jews and Gentiles, are being brought into the church just like Isaiah prophesied that when, that Lord's, when the Lord's house is built on that, on that mountain beginning at Jerusalem that all nations will be brought into it. But then there's this statement that brings us back to the Prince of Peace in Isaiah 2 and verse 4 where it speaks about the nature of Christ's kingdom. Look at verse 4 with me again of Isaiah 2. He shall judge between the nations, speaking of the Messiah, and rebuke many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. Some, when they read that text, they think, well, that will only be realized in heaven. And in heaven, that is certainly going to be the case. No war anymore. But I don't believe Isaiah is looking that far ahead. In the context, we've seen how prophecy Part of this prophecy after part of this prophecy is pointed to Christ and his kingdom, the church. And in that context, it seems this is where this prophecy, it has to do with the, with the kingdom of Christ, the church. And so the answer is, where is the Prince of Peace? Peace is found in the reign of Christ. And notice this, and he is reigning now. He's reigning right now. But wait, there's war in the world. Yes, there is. And we pray as God instructs 1 Timothy 2 for peace. But Jesus is reigning right now over his kingdom. And in his kingdom, there is no war. Because there is the peace that reigns. It's in his spiritual kingdom. It's not some physical kingdom that has a physical temple set up in Jerusalem. It's a spiritual kingdom. He's at the right hand of the throne of God. And what is he doing? He's reigning over his kingdom. And he won't give up that reign until he comes back and he's going to deliver the kingdom back to the Father. He's reigning now. And if that's the case... He's the Prince of Peace now. And if that's the case, we can experience His peace now. Not just in the future, not just in heaven, but even now. What kind of peace is that? Let's think about the peace that's found in the reign of Christ. Number one, He's the Prince of Peace that enables us to have peace with God now. Now. 
Paul in Romans wrote, Therefore, having been justified by faith, by our faith in Jesus, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We can have peace with God right now. And if you're in Christ, you have that peace. Because it's our sin that puts us at enmity with God. It separates us from God. Isaiah 59. But that's why God sent Jesus to die for our sins so that we can be reconciled to Him through His atoning blood. And when we appropriate that blood into our lives, initially through obeying the gospel of Jesus Christ, just like in Acts chapter 2, when we're baptized into Christ as penitent believers, the blood of Jesus washes away our sins and we're reconciled with God. And then as we continue to walk in the light of His Word, the blood of Jesus continues to cleanse us from all sin. And we continue to be reconciled with God only because of what Jesus has done. And the Prince of Peace enables us to have that peace. And that's now. And that's now. Christ is also the Prince of Peace that enables us to have peace with others. Let me take you to Ephesians chapter 2 for a moment. And the backdrop of this is Jews versus Gentiles and that enmity that they experienced in the first century. And watch what Peter, the Apostle Paul says to these Christians, some of which had been Jews, some of which had been Gentiles. He says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, talking about the Gentiles, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both, Jew and Gentile, to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. He's saying... Jew versus Gentile. That's the way it is in the world. But in Christ, you're one. And there's no more enmity. You can have peace with God and peace with one another. In the Old Testament and the temple of old, the Gentiles could only go so far on the temple compound. They could go into the court of the Gentiles. And then there was uh, places where Jews could go further, cl closer to the actual temple itself. And between the court of the Gentiles and these other places, there was a wall that separated them. And the signs posted say, warning Gentiles, if you go past this wall, you're subject to death. I think that's the imagery behind Paul's statement here. In the old economy, Gentiles could only go so far. But just like Isaiah prophesied in the Lord's house and the church, all nations shall flow into it. All nations, differing backgrounds, different colors of skin, different cultures. When they surrender, when each and every one surrenders to Christ, they are reconciled to God, but they are also are united within His kingdom, the church. The Prince of Peace enables us to have peace with others and also peace within. 
Be anxious for nothing, Paul says, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, shall guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. That peace that surpasses all understanding. The peace that can be enjoyed no matter what is going on in the world. It's peace within. Jesus told his apostles about this peace. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled. Neither let it be afraid. The peace of God. The peace from the Prince of Peace is found in the reign of Christ. And Christ is reigning right now. Let's go back to Isaiah. Isaiah, how, how can we have this peace? Isaiah 2, verse 3, Many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us His ways and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. How can we experience this peace? By learning of his ways and then walking in his ways. And that points us to Acts chapter 2. Again, fulfilling what Isaiah had prophesied. The law, the good news of Jesus being sounded in Jerusalem and will continue to go on from there about how people can be reconciled to God and reconciled to one another and experience peace within. And that message is Jesus and what he did for us on the cross. And so to experience that peace that the Prince of Peace gives, we must submit our lives to, to him and to his reign. Tim Hall is a gospel preacher in Johnson City, Tennessee, and I heard him make this statement. Did Christ ever promise his followers that they would live in a world without problems, crime, or warfare? And the answer is no. What he has promised, however, is that we can still enjoy peace during the worst of times. He is in control. He is well capable of managing events which trouble us. The tunnel is dark through which we are traveling. But we trust the engineer and we patiently wait for the light. Folks, the Prince of Peace is on his throne. Don't let the problems of the world cause you to doubt that. And the Prince of Peace invites us, each and every one of us and all, to experience his peace. Peace with God, peace with others, and that precious peace within. And they're found in his reign. They're found when we submit to his reign, when we become a part of his kingdom which is the church of the living God. We live in some dark times.
But may we never forget that the Prince of Peace reigns. And that you and I have the opportunity to be in his kingdom, his spiritual kingdom, that's not affected by what goes on in the world. And we can experience his peace. I close with Isaiah's admonition. It's actually chapter 2, verse 5 of Isaiah. Come and let us walk in the light of the Lord. If you're ready to obey the gospel, if you want to know that peace that the Prince of Peace gives, again, it comes by surrendering your life to the Prince of Peace, being obedient to His will. If you're ready to obey the gospel, just like they did in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, you can repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ and your sins will be washed away. You'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You'll be added to His kingdom where peace prevails. If you're ready to do that this morning, we'd love to assist you. If, you have, if you're going through some dark days of your own, you need the prayers of the church, if you've wandered away and need to come back home, we invite you to come right now as we stand and sing.